Welcome to another episode of Whatever We're Calling This, the podcast of comparative literature and cultural studies at the University of Arkansas. Today, we invited Dr. Judith Maxwell to talk about language, identity, and indigenous peoples. Dr. Maxwell is professor at Tulane University. She holds a PhD from the University of Chicago. Today we have our second episode to celebrate Native American Month. I have a special guest, Dr. Maxwell from uh, Tulane University. And uh, Dr. Maxwell, thank you very much for accepting the invitation. Oh, it's good to be here. No, Dr. Maxwell, I, I, I will be able to talk to you for hours, but then we have a short time uh, to, to discuss your work. And of course, I'm aware that you have been working on a project that uh, it's connected to the Tunica language. And also I'm aware that you study manuscript in other native language, which is amazing. So just to be able to start our conversation and to celebrate Native American Month, I, I just want to uh, ask, what is the connection between identity and language? Well, on, on some levels, it's an extremely uh, tight relationship because uh, a language embodies uh, a culture. It, the words within the language represent concepts that are unique to the culture. And you know, as I teach grammar, I often say, see, the grammar here is showing you that within this worldview, all these beings are animate. There are some that are living and others that are inanimate or inert, that we all have life and we all have uh, agency. And you know the grammar reflects this. So it's in the structure of the language, it's in the lexicon of the language. And then you have uh, also the way in which a person, a personal identity, not just uh, a social group identity, but a personal identity is embodied in the language because as you grow up, you are socialized and you pick up means of uh, interaction from your peers, from your family, from your community. And uh, you probably yourself and other people who are listening have all experienced that you change the way you speak when you speak to pe people who are in different groups, either groups that you're a member of or groups that you aren't a member of. And so you, every, time you, every time you open your mouth, you are saying who you are. And people read so much about you into what you say. And that's why a lot of people spend a lot of money taking like elocution lessons because they want people's first impression not to be of a particular identity, but of an, another set of values that that person as a speaker has. And it's particularly important, um, I think, when you have people who are in marginalized uh, cultures and identities, because uh, quite often the languages uh, that those people would speak in the home and perhaps beyond the home are endangered. And so it becomes a very scarce, precious resource to have this language 
that you can use. And that's one of the reasons you find many indigenous groups today who may have actually lost their heritage language retaking it because even though they didn't grow up speaking the language, that culture and that identity is core to their sense of self. So the interrelations are incredibly complex. And I just cite one study that was done by a colleague of mine in Guatemala, Irma Otsoy, and she is Kiche and speaks her language. And she was studying at the uh, National University and there were a small, there was a small cohort of other Kiche women there. And so she interviewed them about their Kiche identity and how important language was in that. And that also dress, you know, because I'm wearing Guatemalan dress today to in, indicate my solidarity. But uh, she was asking them of all of the things that marked them as Kiche uh, women, what was the most important? And every single one of them said the Kiche language was the most important. And that was interesting because only about half of them could actually speak the language. So even those people who didn't speak said, that's the key identity marker. Well, Dr. Maxwell, uh, you gave us a lot of uh, useful information like for people who are uh, studying uh, languages and the importance of grammar and how language connect cultures and creates identity. So I, I am curious if you can give me one example like from the uh, Tunica grammar, how differs maybe from, from English or oh. any other, or maybe Spanish, because you mentioned the order. And then uh, like, for example, German, in German, just to be able to grasp what the action is, some verbs like are divided. So you need to wait until the end of the sentence to know what the speakers want to say. So I was curious how the Tunica grammar or any other language that you have studied, if you can give us like maybe a, a brief example of like the, the power of grammar in that particular language. Well, well let me give you um, an example from Kachikel and then an example from Tunica. Okay. So in Kachikel, um, most nouns don't have to have a plural mark on them. Like in English, we most of our nouns do take plural markers. So we say books and tables and chairs and people and oxen and uh, platypi, platypuses. Anyway, but we mark number on uh, nouns. And we have a few that we don't bother with like sand and water, but our, our mass nouns, but most of our nouns are count nouns and we put suffixes on them. But in Kachikel, most nouns aren't count nouns. You don't bother. You, if you want to know that it's plural, there's a little word that means plural that you can mm -hmm. put in front, or you can count, you know, two, 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 two chairs, you can count, uh, or you can uh, simply have a verb that it has plural agreement. There's so many ways to show that it's plural, but you don't put it on the noun, right? But there's a group of nouns that you do mark and they happen to be mostly people. So if you wanna say man, one man is a chin, two or achi a, and that a is a suffix. Ishok, woman, ishoki. 
Shtan, young woman, shtani. Alat, boy, alaponi, boys. So they have plural inflection on them. And there are a few things that we might not, we don't count as people, but they still get plural markings. And so examples of those are like rabbits or umuli, coyotes or utiwa. So umur, umuli, utiv, utiwa. But a lot of animals are just like tables and chairs and dog, you know, so dogs, you got utiv, which is coyote and it's utiwa. And you think dogs, that's just a domestic coyote, right? But dogs don't get a plural. It's just tzi. And, you know, alam is a jaguar. The domestic cat is mes, and it doesn't get a plural. Balam, alamat does get a plural. And it isn't just the difference between domestic and wild. There is a hierarchy within the world that shows you how much animacy, how much power, how much uh, free will you think that these animals exhibit. And there are a few things, for example, you wanna talk about the, the stars. And this is a great example, it's the stars. So you would say chumil, that's one star. And you get a lot of stars, that's chumilak. But that's only true if you're talking about stars in the sense of the way the stars that are in the sky at any given time are interacting with people and interacting with your life and helping you along the path that you're supposed to be following for your life. From the moment you're born, the stars that were in the sky at the moment of your birth are the ones that are looking after you during life. And as they reappear in the night sky, then they are still influencing your life. On the other hand, if you're in a physics class and you're talking about stars as great flaming balls of gas in the sky, then they don't get a plural. Then you just say chumif. So that's a perfect way in which the grammar of the language, whether or not you're marking a plural, is completely determined by how you're looking at the, the being that you're talking about. Wow, so this is the best way that we can move to the next question that I have for you, Dr. Maxwell. So I am sure that you have been working with several languages. So how did the Tunica language and culture revitalization program start? Well, um, in uh, 2010, Lin Brenda Lintinger, who was a councilwoman uh, on the Tunica Biloxi Tribes Council, approached Tulane. Um, and I think she did the same thing you did. She went to the New Orleans Center for the Gulf South first, and they referred her to me. And she was interested in having someone who could help them uh, at the tribe revitalize the Tunica language. Now, I want to say at the outset that the Tunica language is a language isolate, so it's not related to any other languages. So it's not like you can look at their first cousin or their second cousin. Uh, it doesn't have any kin. And uh, it, the last speaker died in 1948. So not only is it not spoken now, but it hasn't been spoken 
in most tribal members' memory. Uh, so they, nobody grew up hearing the language. Nobody has uh, a grandparent who remembers a few words. You know, this language was uh, only accessible now in the notes, the linguistic field notes in a couple of publications of uh, linguists who had worked with the language in the past. And uh, there, we were lucky in that the, um, there was a woman in the uh, affiliated, she's not a member of the tribe, but her husband is a member of the tribe who had been uh, coached by her father-in-law to take on the responsibility of trying to safeguard the tribal language and culture. And she had gotten uh, copies of the published materials that were available and some of the archival materials. So the first linguist to work on the language was Albert Gachet or Albert Gatchet, depending on whether you want the French or English pronunciation of his name. And he was working in the late 1800s on the language. Then there was uh, John Swanton in 1910, who did a brief recap, uh, did a little work on his own, but mostly just was going over uh, Gachet's material. And then Mary Haas in 1933 was writing her doctoral dissertation at Yale. And she worked with the last uh, known speaker of the language, Sesostri Uchigai. Okay. And it's her material that's been published uh, through the University of California Press. And she did do two more summers uh, of work. So we have approximately nine months of material from her. And then the little bits of pieces of things. Albert Gachet was actually did a lot of work, but his, his work was never published. But anyway, this uh, woman, uh, Donna Perrette, had gotten a hold of this material, was teaching herself the language, had taught her daughter Elizabeth and her son Jean-Luc a little bit of the language, and they were working on their own to try to get people interested in the language. And so when uh, I was invited to, to help out, I and um, one grad student and two undergrads went up to Marksville, and we had a talk and we worked out uh, what we wanted to do with the language. So uh, as you may be aware, when, when you're starting a revitalization project, you kind of need to know where you're trying to go. Are you trying to bring the language back? Because we were starting at zero, right? To bring it back so that everybody's speaking the language and can have conversations in the language. Is that what we're trying to get to? Or we want, do we want to do something more like the pr project that... Uh, Colette Craig had with the Rama in Nicaragua, which is just teach people a few words so they can throw in some words in their speech to show that they're Rama, but that not really trying to speak the language. And then there are stages in between where you want to be able to do a few things like maybe do a prayer or maybe do welcoming words in the language. You know, you could have limited goals, but in talking with, um, Donna and Elizabeth, we did try, we decided to go for it, to try to bring it back as a spoken conversational language. And so we've been working together uh, with them for the past 12 years. Donna uh, retired last year 
but her daughter continues to be the uh, lead instructor for the program. And we were able to get a Native American Languages Act grant twice to train young people, well, younger than me, which isn't hard to be, but young uh, Tunica people to study their language. So it paid them full time to study their language and to learn to teach the language. And so we're now in the fifth year of that grant. And we have uh, three Tunica uh, young adults who are working on the language, teaching the language, making up new words that we need for modern stuff in language and disseminating it. They're teaching after-school programs for the kids. And we have two immersion experiences a year uh, for the kids. We do a summer camp and then we have a, a winter immersion. Uh, and um, for the summer camp, we have a lot more attendance because kids can come from the other communities because the Tunica community is spread between Marksville here in Louisiana, uh, a group that's in Houston and a group that's in Chicago. So for the winter immersion, it's hard to get everybody together because it's just three days and school's starting again and all that. But when we get them for the summer, it's, it's a week long immersion experience. And we have kids now because we, we've been doing this, we, we didn't start the summer camps the first year. So we've been doing the summer camps for 10 years. And so we have kids that have grown up with the language and they can and do use the language for the things that we've been able to do in summer camp. You know, and of course that doesn't bring us back to having them able to talk about uh, their football game uh, in Tunica yet. But we're also uh, revitalizing some of the cultural practices because, you know, in that I question of identity and how language is built, built up in your identity, developing more cultural practices that are also marked as indigenous help. And so we're bringing back stickball. Oh, yes. And so uh, we get the kids that are saying, weaki, weaki, throw it, throw it, throw it. <laughs> you know? Uh, so um, we're expanding the domains for the use of language. And it's a slow process, but it's really fun to see uh, the kids, you know, of all sizes now uh, use, using the language. And um, we, in, we have uh, a lot of involvement. It's, it's hard to get the parents to come in and learn the language because they can't take that week off of work, generally right. speaking. But uh, they come, we, we have a celebration at the end of the summer camp that has a big meal for everybody. And then the, the kids present a program in Tunica and the parents are very supportive and appreciative that uh, their, their kids at least are able to uh, use the language and to create little plays or songs in the language and perform them. Uh, so there's a lot of community support for the revitalization program. 
Now that that is like a, a change for like a future generation. So you, we might not see it now, but then in the future, just with the kids, and then they're being able to attend. That is like a change that is going to be seen in the in the following decades. Uh, Doctor Maxwell, um, now because you mentioned that you have been teaching this type of uh, classes as well at, at Tulane University, and I'm curious, like, what's the like the connection? How do like a uh, graduate and undergraduate uh, students involved in this project. You mentioned that some of them went there and then they help at the beginning, but what are they doing right now? Or maybe in the last year, but based on, yeah. I, I don't know how often they get involved in the project. Well, um, the gateway usually <laughs> is to either take, I, I offer a little course here at Tulane. It's a two week course. Uh, at the beginning of uh, June, because the summer camp is the second week in June. So the first week I give this crash course that teaching tunica and teaching the methodology for teaching it. And for that course, we know what the theme for the summer camp is going to be. So like this past summer, the theme for the summer camp was ceramics. So we taught a lot of vocabulary for how to make pots and how to fire pots and how to decorate pots and all of those kind that kind of vocabulary. And then the Tulane students who were in that class were learning that vocabulary, learning how to use the language and then learning how to teach it. So when we went to the summer camp, they could be in charge of little groups of kids using the language, completely in the language, overseeing, uh, the language learning activities, but also the craft activities. And then we didn't teach them any stickball um, vocab, but they hopefully would have picked that up uh, <laughs> when, when we, we got the games underway. But um, the, the course is an undergraduate course. So students can do, can do this course and graduate students, I don't offer it at a graduate level, but graduate students have often sat in on that course and then done the summer camp. And that kind of immersion, that kind of putting you into the, the situation where you're using tunica as your means of communication. And the, the summer camp, you know, intake, intake, that's what we call it when the kids come in the morning is eight o'clock. And so you're using the language from eight to five and you, you know, you get a break when you go to the break room <laughs> and, and hide for 15 <laughs> minutes. And we do, uh, we don't enforce that you speak only tunica lunch and right. stuff like that. But that's a lot of tunica use. And so once somebody has had that kind of fluency, then we can move them in to projects that are working throughout the year. So we've been producing a beginning language textbook, which should come out this spring from Indiana University Press. We're working on the second textbook already, uh, following that up. And there, we're doing a lot of transcription. We have all of the transcriptions of the materials that Mary Haas went over with the Sostra Uchigat, but we still have materials from Gachet Swanton that we need to get into digital format. So people are doing uh, work with the digital materials uh, throughout the year. And then uh, we have another immersion experience, but we like to bring people in during one of these immersion experiences so that they have enough fluency to be able to go on and do other activities. Uh, no, Dr. Maswell, you mentioned several books. There is a lot of projects coming. So 
is there any opportunity for the community or maybe graduate students from other universities who might would like to, to, to participate and help like possibly online or, or transcribing or doing these kind of things. So do you have that option available? Have you Oh, yes. And, and in fact, um, one of my graduate students who's working on his dissertation on the change that we see in the Tunica language as it's being brought back into the community and used again as an active form of communication was just saying the other day, we need more people. You got to get more people. And I was like, where am I getting them? I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, there are, like I said, I prefer to bring people in at one of these immersions because it gets you going. But, you know, if you have some kind of uh, background in linguistics or just with a variety of languages and think you could transcribe or that you could even like proof the, the new chapters of the, the second textbook, you know, there are all kinds of little important, but I don't want to say drudgery, um, meticulous work that 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 needs to be done and um the if, if people are interested in helping out they could get in touch with rebecca moore who um just graduated uh from tulane last spring and she's now the linguist um coordinating the language and culture revitalization program for the for the tribe so her um Email is rmoore, M-O-O-R-E, at tunica.org. Okay, people, you got the email. So if you're interested <laughs> in helping with this project, just send the email and Rebecca will be able to uh, give you more details about this. Now, uh, Dr. Maswell, this, well, I have like two last, well, yeah, two more questions for you. And okay, one is... Um, I feel that sometimes there is a, a, a gap between what uh, academics and what the university does and what the community and the tribe needs. However, your project seems that is a bridge that combines both of them. So it is a benefit for both sides. So I'm curious if maybe you can give us uh, advice or suggestions for people, professors, graduate students, future scholars, who want to make an impact on co communities and indigenous tribes, what do they need to be careful? What, uh, what they need to be cautious, how they can use their own dissertation to make a, uh, to, to, to benefit the tribes. So is there any suggestion on that part? Ah, well, you know, it, in, in some ways, this, I have the, the this was the perfect, kind of, 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 of relationship because there was a felt need, you know, we were invited to come and help, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I need a project and I'm going to work on this and let me find somebody to let me do it. You know, th this was an already expressed need from the, the, <clears throat> from the community. And they reached out through a tribal councilwoman in a position of power so that we have the support of the council. They set up a, a division of their tribal administration that's called 
the Tunica Language and Culture Revitalization Program. And they had hired a director for it. They're the people that are running the education programs. They're the people that are administering the NALA grant. This is all done community internally. And what the actual projects are that the uh, young people who are teaching and learning the language are working on are funneled through this, this uh, program. And so there's, those goals are set by the tribe. You know? So where Tulane is coming in is to aid with technical knowledge and, and to help people understand the structures that they're learning, to understand how this is, is, is working. And particularly because the linguistic, well, linguistics like any uh, science has changed a lot over the intervening years have you know, advanced our understandings of how processes in the language, in languages in general work, and then are able to reinterpret some of the uh, descriptions that are in the earlier materials that have been published. And so uh, we're able to, to basically be a technical support group. And then also, and you can't knock it, supply a lot of labor. You know, most of the transcription of the, into, of the digital te text has been done by Tulane students and one incredible outside volunteer, I'll just give a shout out to David Prine, uh, who uh, went on to finish a degree in linguistics somewhere else and is now uh, working for another indigenous tribe. But he did an, an, a humongous amount of work in early tran transcriptions. But this is the best of, of all possible worlds where, where the tribe has a goal, they have a project they want, and the academy, so to speak, is providing the skills that are needed to help get to that goal. And, uh, you know, so advice to other people is from the very beginning, you need to work with the group to decide what you're trying to do, what your goals are, what the projects to be, and what the, what the products could be. So I mentioned Andrew's current. Um, project, but I had another graduate student before this, Patricia Anderson, who, uh, when she was getting ready to start her dissertation, asked, what's the most pressing need right now? What do you need right now? And everyone said, we need a dictionary that we can reference, because uh, the print dictionary uh, from Haas was out of print and it was not very intelligible to, to someone who didn't understand IPA and didn't understand a lot of these abbreviations. And so uh, Patricia did work to systematize the dictionary, to systematize the grammatical classifications, to create a template for the dictionary entries, and then to create uh, two digital formats for the dictionary. So we have the ubiquitous phone app, uh, so you can just look it up on your phone and we have um, a webinary, an, an online uh, dictionary, and it allows people to look up and this and sh she's also trained the uh, young scholars who are coming up with the NALA grant through the tribe to be able to update the those products so that as, as new words are created, then they go into the dictionary. And they go in with the 
example sentences and all of this so that we have a living dictionary of a living language. And you know, then her dissertation was an examination of that process and what was learned in the process and how it basically turned into a book that she later published, which is can be a reference for other tribes that are looking to do the right. same type of process. Now, Dr. Maxwell, because we're talking about a living language, can you teach us uh, maybe one expression or one word or anything just to, to, to be able to, to grasp how it sounds and to see if maybe I can, if, if I can say it. <laughs> okay, well, let me teach you just a couple. So uh, the just general greeting is henny. It, it, like for high and by the same yeah. one? Well, no, for just for high. Okay, henny. henny. And that just means it's nothing like greetings. Okay. <laughs> henny. Okay. All right. And, but even though that word exists, what most people do when they meet each other is to say, is to say, how are you, my friend? And so the word for friend is eti. And it's one of these words that always has to be possessed. There, you, you can't be a friend if you're not somebody's friend. And that makes sense, right? So uh, it turns out that you, when you say my friend, that there are these phonological processes that happen. So you don't hear the my part, but you would just say eti, which is my friend. And then usually, you mark the gender of the person you're speaking to. So if I'm speaking to you, I would say etima for my friend recognizing that you're male. And then I would say lapun, lapun. And that would mean my friend, are you well? And you would respond lapu, I'm well. And then you wanna ask me. So you would say khemat. So when I talk to you as a male, I call it, I say ma, but when you talk to me, you call me hema, because mm. I'm a woman, right? Okay, hema so, ma, okay. So that's one of the interesting things because uh, in English, we only recognize gender distinctions in the third person, like she and he. But in Tunica, you mark it in second person. So you masculine, you feminine, and in third person, you feminine she and he so you you can so i would say etimalapun and you would say lapu hemat and i would say lapu tikach good thanks uh thank you very much uh, dr maxwell for uh all the time for all the information you have given us and of course for uh, teaching us these uh expressions thank you Okay. Yeah, uh, Ikshepa, I'm happy to do it. Well, it looks like the episode is over. Thank you to the Program of Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies. Thank you to Dr. Maswell for accepting the invitation. And I hope you join us next time in another episode of whatever we're calling this. Nos vemos. <laughs>